Hey, good morning. My name's Chuck. I'm from Jonesboro, not Little Rock. I don't know if you're speaking prophetically. You spent the last four days in Little Rock, maybe. I used to live in Little Rock. Don't really want to move back to Little Rock. Now, my name's Chuck. Uh, thrilled to be here. Known Brad for several years. You know, a lot of different, uh, God puts a lot of different desires in a lot of different people's hearts for a lot of different down and out groups. And God's put a unique desire uh, for the least, the last, and the lost in my heart. And it's this group of people called church planters. And so uh, they're either crazy or called or a little of both usually. They're good. And so uh, that's how I've gotten to know Brad. And so God put me on the planet, hopefully to at times encourage uh, and build up uh, church planters. They'll know uh, that God loves them and not to base their whole ministry on their performance and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, man, I'm thrilled to be here. Love Brad, Katie. Wish I knew him even better than I did. I always enjoy being around them. Uh, Kate and I got here early. My daughter's with me, sitting out in the hall with all the kids. It's like, man, I almost want to go back there and preach. It's like very exciting and just just the picture of adoption all over this place. That's very, very special and very, very unique. And uh, and God is pleased. And, and uh, yeah, that, that alone has encouraged Kate and I this morning. So thank you for that uh, from this church family. Today, um, I'm just going to look at Jesus' invitation to really live. I want to look at the real Jesus offering us real life. And, you know, you can go to lots of scriptures for that. John 10 talks about, you know, I've come to give you life and life abundantly. And, and uh, the, the issue in, as I'm getting older is like, man, I read my Bible and it's like there's so much in there that I've yet to experience that I want to experience, I think, is being offered and it's full of life and joy. And we're going to look at John 15 today, this famous passage on abiding. And there's all court, uh, sorts of great fruit and promises and promises of joy and, and huge answers to prayer and power to obey and the ability to glorify God. Uh, just all sorts of stuff that to me sounds like really living. The sad thing is when I talk to most people out on the streets is they're not really living. I, mean, I talk to people who are in church all the time and uh, one example would be that I'd say, man, do you, do you think you're forgiven of your sins? I go, yes, of course. I say, well, do you ever, how much of your life do you spend feeling forgiven and just, just invigorated by the fact that you are forgiven? And most every time the person says, not much of the time. I mean, there's just some disconnect between this great invitation to really live and what happens out in everyday life, both in the church and out of the church. So I got a couple of quotes. This just enthralled me. This, uh, I was reading a book about a month ago on just the call of Jesus, the invitation of Jesus. And it said that there's no practice greater. It's going to come, isn't it? No practice greater. Well, you can listen. We good? No? Coming? Awesome. You got to see it. This has really motivated me. There's no practice greater than abiding in Jesus. The life of God is both fully realized and fully released in the lives of those who've moved from striving to abiding. And I read that and I couldn't get it out of my head. I went, man, it just kind of sucked me in. It drew me in. In this book that Derek Worthington wrote about discipleship and just that idea that the life of God... That's really living when the life of God is animated within a, a sinful human being after they've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And, but they, the life of God can be both just fully realized inside me and fully released so that I can be a blessing and not a curse to others. And so I, I just, after that, dug into John 15. I'm going, I want to learn. If the, there's no practice greater than abiding in Jesus, let me see if he's telling the truth. It's a old. If you grew up around the church, you know the Bible at all. It's a famous passage. It's a well talked about passage. But I had a lot of fuzziness what it really meant to abide in Jesus. And and I've learned a lot in the last month of I, as I focused on this. And just want to share some things that I think are incredibly helpful. That there's no practice greater than abiding in Jesus. So that's a great invitation to really live. That the life of God. It's not just some external uh, marching to principles found in a Bible, but it's Christianity is about God being alive and in you, fully realized and fully released. 
And then on the other end of the spectrum, I'm going to show you two more quotes as we introduce here this morning. The next one is just pretty sad. It says, far too many people are hanging on in quiet desperation, covering their dread and despair with a polite but forced smile. The fear is not just that we're going to die. The fear is that we will never really live. Do you want to really live? So often, we just fake it. I'm talking about church people. We fake it. We read this Bible, and there's a disconnect from the invitation and promises of Jesus from our real life, and so we're left hanging on in quiet desperation, thinking there's more, hoping there's more, expecting there's more, but have some kind of disconnect how they can't tap into that more to really live so that the life of God is fully realized in them and released through them. I want to really live. Do you want to really live? The second one is pretty depressing from Brene Brown's book. It says, we're the most in-debt, medicated, obese, and addicted generation of adults in American history. Man, that's the fruit of being discipled by our culture. A crazy advanced culture we have here in North America. Apparently, social media and Google and Netflix aren't doing the trick. We've got access to all this entertainment to make us happy. They offer, the world offers, all the same things the scriptures offer. A better life, a good life. Everyone offers the same thing. The question is, who can deliver? God offers it. Binge watching Netflix offer. What's going to comfort us? What's going to excite us? What's going to take us from hanging on in quiet desperation and hiding to enlivening us? It is Jesus. We want to be discipled this morning, not by the world, but by Jesus. I mean, the fruit of being discipled by the world just produces anxiety and shame and striving and restlessness and confusion. Confusion. It's not only bad for your soul, I mean, it's toxic to those around you and your family and your neighborhood and your workplaces because you're not connected to anything healthy. I love the Grizzlies. I love their motto. Kind of fits my golf game, grit and grind, you know. I was always a mutter, you know. If you ever go to watch horse race, they got the mutters, you got the grinders out on the golf course. Not a whole lot of talent, just a lot of grit and grind. I love it. I mean, just pull up your bootstraps and outwork people. Get nasty. Love it. Come over here as often as I can. Anybody have any extra free tickets? Just call me. I'll come even more. And while that's awesome for NBA basketball, that philosophy about life is toxic to your soul. You just can't, with your own resources, accept Jesus' invitation to really live. Anyway, today we're going to look at, go and start turning there. John 15, um, my Bible and those, the Bartle Bible is all on page 901. John 15, look at this great passage. But as you turn there, maybe you're already there. I, I, Brad said it, we've been talking about it. I want you to expect, expect to hear from God today. Expect that what this passage is going to promise you is that in 2017, you can expect to bear much more fruit. Expect to bear much more fruit. I'm talking about in your parenting. I'm talking about in your character, your development, your own just spiritual formation, in, in your missional community. What is that what you call them around here? What do you call them? Okay. In your coffee groups? Huh? Am I reading the banners right? Yeah. I know what's going on here. In your gathering? I mean, I want you to expect that you're going to see that you will bear much more fruit in your missional communities. And in, in, in Mercy Hill all together and in church planning in the future. I want you to expect it because part of the invitation is to bear much more fruit. And we're going to talk about that. Let's read John 15, the first 11 verses. Y'all stand or sit when you read? I don't care. It's not like a rule. Y'all stand? Y'all want to stand? Okay. We got leadership going on here. <laughs> stand. We're going to listen to the Word of God. This is the Word of God. 
This is Jesus. This is the upper room discourse. This is these disciples not knowing what's next. He's just washed their feet. Judas has just left for the night. Jesus says, I'm getting ready to go get crucified. They're scared spitless. They don't like their circumstances. And Jesus is trying to now teach them in John 15 how they're supposed to live and really live even after he goes back to the Father. That's the context, okay? And Jesus is telling these scared men, I am the true vine, and my Father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you kept my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be be full. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. You can go ahead and sit down. Let's pray. Father God, I pray through your Holy Spirit that you would fill the room with your presence and fill every heart here with joy. That's your promise. That's your invitation. That's your desire, Jesus, more than even my desire, that your joy will be placed in these dear children of yours and that their joy would be made full. Show us today what we need, the joy replacements we need to get rid of, the things we're clinging to for life that do not work, that are lying to us, and help us, give us wisdom to know what it means in these 11 verses to abide in you, Jesus. You were teaching them to really live after you'd gone and they couldn't see you face to face. We don't get to see you face to face today. But the promise stands. Help us really live. We want your life to be fully realized and fully released through us today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. In Mercy Hill as it is in heaven. In Midtown as it is in heaven. In Memphis as it is in in heaven, in the Mid-South, as it is in heaven. I need your help to speak. These people need your help to hear. We can't even do that without you. So come help us. Amen. Amen. So here's how we're going to attack this today. Real simply, I'm going to ask three questions to this text that I've been learning. There's no way to to get out all the nuggets in John 15, 1 to 11. Uh, call me, text me, we can talk. There's a lot more in there that I won't be able to talk about today. But three questions to answer is, what's wrong? What's wrong? Why, not, why am I not? Why are we not really living? The second thing we're going to talk about is, what is fruit? I mean, I've heard this all my life. I mean, it's like, go expect to bear more fruit. But what, what specifically? I mean, it sounds good. I like fruit. I like what I think fruit is. But I've learned some things that excite me more than I've ever about wanting to bear much more fruit. And the third, real practical, which we'll spend the most amount of time on is, what is abiding? How do we practically do it? Help, help. And I want to share some things about that. So what's wrong? What's fruit? What's abiding? Real simple. That's what we're going to talk about. Is that good? Good. What's wrong? I mean, all through the passage, look at verse 5. It says that we can expect to bear much fruit. 
Right? You see it? He it is that bears much fruit. You got the comparison. You're either going to do nothing, apparently, with your life, or you're going to bear much fruit. Those things to be the two options. Look over at verse 8. It says again, My Father is glorified if you abide, that you may bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. You look at verse, I know we didn't read this, but verse 16 even goes so far as to say, Jesus saying, I, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So Jesus is talking a lot about bearing much fruit. So what's the problem? Why are we not more productive? Why do we not see more fruit? These are the questions I was asking myself, and there's maybe a lot of things that are wrong, but for me, here's just one thing that I want to touch on this morning is that I was believing a lie. In my head, I'm a performance addict. I tend to just grit and grind. I tend to just get after it. And the lie I was believing is, is that to produce more, I had to work more. And if I worked less, I would produce less. I mean, I thought we had to choose between this seemed like kind of awesome, intimate, abiding, close, personal friendship, relationship with the living God through Jesus, or I could get to work and get exhausted out serving Him and His kingdom. Those two, it seemed like an either-or proposition to me. The good news of this passage, it's, I mean, I knew this already, but learning it on a deeper level, we don't have to choose between incredible intimacy and incredible influence. We don't. In fact, one leads to the other. We don't have to choose between rest in Him and results. We don't have to choose between peace in our soul and productivity. This passage shows us this great paradox. Again, that's why I guess Worthington said there's no practice greater than abiding in Jesus. The truth is, in this passage, is that uh, apart from me, he says you can do nothing. Get the picture, right? We got the Father who's this vine dresser. He's got this vineyard. Jesus says, I'm the true vine. I'm healthy. I've got life in it. I've got roots deep. I've got nutrients flowing through me. And we got, you're the branches. You're either going to be connected to this healthy vine or you're going to be laying out on the ground, right? That's kind of the picture. No branch has life in itself. You don't have life in itself. We just sang, we're singing praises because it's His breath in our lungs. We didn't think ourselves up. We didn't create ourselves. No branch has life in itself. We're no good by ourselves. We got to get connected to something, and that's what we all do. That's what life, that's what we've done all of our life. We've got this big meaning and purpose and belonging hose, and we keep attaching it to different things like, give me meaning, give me purpose. I need to really live. And this passage says, abide in me. Hook up that big sucking vacuum in from your soul to me, the source of all life, and you will be at rest. And you won't need all this other stuff, and you'll have everything your hearts long for and everything that you really want, and you'll get the desires of your heart. It's amazing. That's the promise. Let's hear John 15, 5, uh, John 15, verse 5, one more time as we think about what's wrong just to get this paradox in our head and this lie out of our head. I'm the vine, you're the branches. And when I point to myself, I know I'm not Jesus. I'm, anyway, don't get confused. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So don't believe the lie. What Jesus is offering, really live, is to have incredible influence and bear much fruit without getting burned out. Maybe bone-weary, but not soul-weary. That's the offer. I mean, we should work hard. This isn't talking about laziness. This is talking about soul rest in Him and great fruit-bearing. So that's the first. That's what's wrong is that I thought it had to be one or the other. You know, it's that Mary Martha story. If you're familiar with that, it's like, I always like, well, Martha was getting a lot done, you know. And Mary, she's supposed to sit at the feet. I'm like, well, if I just do what Mary did, nothing's going to get done. But Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That's got to come first. We have to be intimate with Jesus because he wants to live his life through us. So that's first. The second thing is, what is fruit? All my life, I've heard some good sermons on this. And, and 
And they've been helpful. One thing, fruit, they'll take you over to Galatians 5, and what's the fruit of the Spirit, and love, joy, peace, patience, and all that. That's, yes, that's part of what this is, but there's more here. I heard, I remember my old pastor taught this one time. He said, well, what this is talking about is uh, you got conversion fruit and you got character fruit. So, so if you're abiding in Christ, you'll, you'll have converts, you'll, but personally you'll be developing character. So that was helpful. I mean, I've remembered that now for 20 years, so I guess it is helpful. But there, I think there's more in what, what is the fruit? When it, Jesus says, when he offers you life and he says, you're going to bear much more fruit, we're going to bear much more of what? This is fascinating. When you dig, this passage answers the question itself. Look at verse 4. Abide in me. You hear that talk all the time, right? Just abide in Jesus. But did you catch that next phrase? A little simple phrase. And I in you. Jesus is, as we abide in him, he's going to abide in us. So I really think what he's talking about, if you're going to bear much more fruit, it is, he said, if you abide in me, I'm going to be abiding in you, and I'm going to be living. This is Jesus saying, I want to live my perfect life through you. That's the fruit. The fruit is, is that Jesus will be active on planet Earth through you. The fruit is anything that Jesus did. Jesus is doing the same works in Memphis today as Jesus did through the apostle in Acts. It's the same Jesus. That's a picture of abiding. Read Acts. That's fruitful, right? Conversions, joy, miracles. It's crazy. In this passage, there's lots of fruit. As uh, little phrases you see in verse 7, it says, As you abide in me, you'll have crazy answered prayers. You want to be effective prayers? We'll abide in Jesus. Verse 8 talks about, it's our whole purpose, right? To glorify God. That's what verse 8 says. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. You have intimacy in verse 9 as a fruit because it says we'll, we'll love one another. And in verse 10, there'll be great, great commission obedience to his commands. That's the fruit of abiding. Verse 11, he goes, you're going to experience the joy of Jesus. So all those are fruit so just to close up this little simple point what is fruit hear this mercy hill family the question is not what would jesus do in memphis if he were here today that's not the question no because jesus is here today Jesus is alive from the dead, and through the Spirit of Christ, one of the names for the Holy Spirit, He is here. He created you and redeemed you for the purpose of indwelling you and living here. Jesus indwells Mercy Hill Church. So the question is, how can we connect with Him so He can do His full will in Memphis through you? That's the question we're facing, right? Right? You want to spend your life trying to live your life and to... Make disciples in Memphis without him? Or do you want to step out of the way and abide and enjoy him and rest in him and let him do what he wants to do in Memphis? That's how he taught us to pray, right? My will be done. He wants his will to be done. He's looking for a people that are wholly available to him. They just want to trust him and rest in him and abide in him. So that's the first two. And then spend a little more time on this third question because hopefully as you think about fruit, you're going, yeah, that, that's pretty much something I'd love to see. That's good. I'd love to see the life of God realized and released through me and my neighborhoods. I always thought as, as I was praying this last week's coming, I just all the M's kept coming up, right? I got Mercy Hill, I'm going to Madison, we got Midtown, Memphis, Mid-South, you know. Y'all got, apparently you need to go to one nation named M. Anybody? Any M nations you can feel in your heart? Anybody? Maybe go Manhattan first? No? What is some M nations? I'm not real smart. Madagascar, what was it? Malawi. I don't know. What else? Malaysia. Mali. Okay, y'all need, maybe you need to pray about that. I don't know. God's in alliteration. Uh, anyway. Question three. I mean, what is abiding? 
I mean, it's using this agrarian metaphor, and I mean, you know, we're people. We're not branches. And I started to think, you know, well, I'm a branch. How's a branch going to, like, hop up on a vine? And you know, well, that's not the point. What's he really getting at? And in the same book where I got that first definition, uh, I've modified it quite a bit, but it's, uh, give credit to this Derek Worthington guy. I wrote a book on the call of Jesus. Um, so I've adapted his definition. So I'm going to put, there you go. This is what's helpful to me. This is the meat right here. Abiding is an effortless resting in the risen Jesus, confident in three things. Confident in his affection for you, his abilities to work in and through you, and then in his authorship of our story. Now, I put three A's because this is, I'm telling you, the last two weeks when I worked on this, just I was already studying this. I was longing to abide more in Christ. Brad said, yeah, you're preach this day. Can I preach on John 15? He says, sure. Anyway, sounds good. And so this is incredible helpful. And, you know, preachers do that. They'll alliterate stuff. But these three A's, I, I do this because I'm simple-minded and I'm very forgetful and I need to remind myself constantly. But I can remember this. This has encouraged me so much the last two weeks just to say, well, what is abiding, you know? Instead of being nebulous, well, it's, just, it's resting in Jesus, the risen Jesus, the finished work of Jesus. It's this confidence. I love that word. We need to be more and more confident in his affections and his abilities and his authorship. So I'm just going to walk through those three things. Abide in Jesus' affections for you. Look at John 15, 9. This is a special verse. As the Father has loved me. Okay, how did the Father love Jesus? I mean, he couldn't have done it any better. Perfectly, completely, eternally. He gave him everything he needs. Father perfectly loved Jesus. He led him and got him and had he was here. He gave the spirit to guide him. And that's what Jesus said. He goes, guys, what I've been doing with you, the way I've loved you is just the way the Father loves me. So the Father's loved me. So I've been loving you. Now abide in my love. We know other passages he's going to say, as I've loved you, like I think Ephesians 5.1, go love others. So true. But that's not the point he gets to just yet. He says, abide in my love. Receive my love. You know, just rest in, believe, meditate on my love. That's so important. And yet, there's so many voices and so many enemies. What does this really mean to learn to rest in the Father's arms, in the Savior's care? It's helpful to know that That's what you were designed for. In the garden, before the fall, God designed you to receive his love and care. The Trinity was complete. He created you because he couldn't contain himself. He said, we have to create a people who can share this awesomeness, this affection that we have for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We want to share it, so let's create man and woman in our image, and let's just Pour out our affection and care and guidance and purpose and belonging. and For they can be fruitful and multiply this kind of affection across the planet. What a vision. You're made for this. You're made to abide in his love and care. The good news about abiding in his love is that the pressure's off. Because Jesus, later in John, says it is finished. He's fully accomplished everything you're so feels compelled to strive for. And I know we hear this all the time. If you grew up in church since you're a little kid, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's one thing to know it, hear it, rehearse it. It's another thing to experience it, isn't it? There's so many objections. I just take three minutes. I want to read to you. Uh, anybody ever heard of Milton Vincent? He wrote a deal called Gospel Primer. It's a great little book. Anybody ever heard of it? Yeah. Well, it's got all sorts of little things in there, and I read this all the time. It takes three minutes. I timed it this morning. But this is going to help. It helps me, so hopefully it serves you and helps you abide in His love. This is basically a summary of God's love and care and affection for you. Vincent writes, My God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of His hand. 
He is unimaginably awesome in all of His perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of His ways. He has been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from Him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from His loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have I owe to Him and to His goodness. My life in every way is and will continue to be utterly dependent on Him in whom I live and move and have my being. This wonderful God is the most supremely worthy object of admiration, honor, and delight in all the universe. And He created me with the intention that I might glorify Him by finding my soul's delight in Him and by living in joyful obedience to Him in all of my ways. Yet, I could not have failed this great God more miserably than I have. Instead of giving thanks to Him and humbly submitting to His rule over my life, I've rebelled against Him and have actually sought to exalt myself above Him. Going my own way and living according to my own wisdom, I have broken countless times either the letter or spirit of every one of God's Ten Commandments. Thinking myself to be wise, I've shown myself to be a fool. And because of my arrogance, God has every right to damn me to the everlasting experience of His terrifying wrath in the lake of fire. So as for myself, apart from Christ, I am bound by the guilt of my sins and bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Apart from Christ, I am utterly deserving of and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save myself or even to make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. However, what I could not do, God did. And in doing it, He did it all sending His own Son into the world to die on the cross for my sins, showing me His unfathomable love. God loved me so much He was willing to suffer the loss of His Son. And even more amazingly, He was willing to allow His Son to suffer the loss of Him at the cross. Jesus loved me so much He was willing to lay down His life for me. No one could ever love me more or better than Jesus. On the third day after Jesus' death, God raised Him from the dead thereby announcing his death was completely sufficient to atone for every sin that I have or will commit throughout my lifetime. God then exalted Jesus to his own right hand where Christ now reigns from on high, granting salvation and forgiveness to all who call on him by faith. Now, when time came and I placed my faith in Jesus, God instantly granted me a great salvation. He forgave me of all of my sins, past, present, future, he made me his child. He adopted me into his family. He gave me the gift of his Holy Spirit to live in me, who gives me God's power, who pours out God's love within my heart, who tenderly communicates to my spirit that I'm a child of God and an heir, I mean, an heir of eternal glory in heaven. In saving me, God also freed me from the slavery to sin. And I no longer have to sin again, for sin's mastery over me has been broken saving me. God also justified me. And being justified through Christ, I have peace with God that will endure forever. In justifying me, He declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. God allowed His future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated by Jesus who bore it on Himself while on the cross. Consequently, now, God has only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me. And this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. God looks on me and treats me with gracious, undeserved favor, always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to me even through trials. Because I'm a justified one, he subjugates every trial and forces it to do good to me. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more. As he, when I'm sinning, he graciously maintains my justified status as described above. When I sin, God feels no wrath toward me. 
Get that? When you sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for you, and he longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him so that he might show me the gracious and forgiving love that's been in his heart all along. God doesn't require confession before he has desire to forgive me. In his heart, he's already forgiven me. When I come to confess my sins to him, he runs to me, as it were, and is repeatedly embracing and kissing me even before I get the words of confession out of my mouth. Sure, God sees my sins, and he's grieved by my sins, but his grief comes partly from the fact that in my moments of sin, I'm not receiving the fullness of his love for me. He even sends chastisement into my life, but he does so because he's for me and he loves me. He disciplines me for my ultimate good. I don't deserve any of this, even on my best day. But this is my salvation, and herein I stand. Thank you, Jesus. Abide in that Jesus, the real Jesus, that kind of affection. It's undeserved. So often our objections go, I don't feel I deserve it. Well, next time you feel that way, go, devil, I don't deserve it, but I get it anyway. And when you sin, I love that sentence. Just a, I'm not going to preach Vincent here, but one sentence. I love the sentence. God, because he's already punished Jesus, now only has love and compassion for you. God only has the deepest affection for you. His love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. He's not like half furious over your sin and half loving towards you. No, he pulled 100% of his wrath upon Jesus so that he's going to treat you with no admixture of wrath whatsoever. The cross freed him to do nothing but pour out affection on you, undeserved affection. And you don't have a limited number of chances to get this thing right. You just come to him with your sin and learn all the more about how gracious he is. Abide in Jesus' affection for you as you do. Man, that's really living. Amen? Amen. Second, we got to abide not only in Jesus' affections for us, but we abide in Jesus' abilities. His abilities, not our abilities. Again, John 15, 5, we read it several times. Implication is that apart from me, you can do nothing. The implication is, but with me, you can bear much fruit, right? There's other verses. With God, how many things are possible? That's right. We need to have confidence. We need to rest in Him. And resting in Him and His affection and now resting in Him and His abilities, man, gives us more courage to do ministry and to love and to lay ourselves down because now that we have full affection poured out on us, we don't need to grab and take and need. We're not as needy from you, although we need each other. And so we can serve out of that overflow of a full heart. I was reading Matthew 9. These two blind men, they came up to Jesus. Have mercy on us, son of David. You know what Jesus asked him? He says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? He's asking the blind man, do you think I'm able to heal you? And he answered it by healing them. <laughs> they don't even show what their answer is. Well, I don't even remember. You have to go read Matthew 9. But the point is, that's a good question for us today. What do we believe about Jesus' abilities? There's things you're asking God to do through you, through your church, through your family, in your kids, in your neighborhood. What's Jesus able to do? What do you believe Jesus is able to do in your kitchen, around your kitchen table? As you kneel down and pray with your kids at night, what do you think Jesus is able to do? when you're in your coffee groups, your missional communities, and it's gathering. What's Jesus able to do at Mercy Hill, Midtown, on Madison, Memphis, Mid-South, Mali? What's he able to do? Well, the beautiful thing is, is that abiding and believing in Jesus unlocks the power of God. There's the paradox. We're hungry to, to be influential and to have the power of God released, but we're running disconnected from Jesus and exhausting our souls. And the key in this passage is, is abiding and believing in Jesus unlocks the power of God. 
J.D. Greer writes, when we depend on God and not ourselves for wisdom, provision, power, and guidance, then we access his power when we're desperate, when we're weak. And this applies to all of our areas of our life with Jesus. When we feel capable, we tend to not rely on him, and we don't see much happen. So feeling capable is what we desperately all want to do. And it's even strange about leadership development. Let's help our leaders feel capable. And I understand there's some competencies here. But we better train our leaders, train our kids, that when they're living life in their own capabilities, they're living life in their own strength, and they won't experience the power of God. Paul learned that in 2 Corinthians 12. He was desperate. He was begging God to remove this thorn in the flesh. And he didn't change anything, but he says, when you're weak, you'll be strong, and the power of Christ will rest upon your ministry. And until then and every day, he told him, but my grace is sufficient for you. Weak made strong in the Savior's love. We hate being weak. We hate being needy. But that's the lesson we have to learn if we want to abide in him. The thing is, we want to have, it helps us. We've tried and failed enough to go, okay, Jesus, if we have this growing confidence in Jesus' abilities, I think we'll tend to have a growing ability to not think too much about our abilities. And so focus and try to develop confidence in what Jesus does by reading the word and all and getting in community. To me, it's helpful to think about Jesus' ability. What really makes me weaker and more dependent is, uh, first, is to see the magnitude of the mission you've been called to. Some people, when they say, well, we're not bearing much fruit, and they kind of lower the bar on what God's calling us to. Well, God says, no, in this passage, it's an invitation to really live, but it's also an invitation to bear much fruit. It's an invitation that through this church and in this city and beyond, this thing will multiply, that the life of God, the life of Jesus, mediated through the Holy Spirit of God, will be both fully realized and fully released from you. That's the call. Jesus says, that's why I chose you, to go and bear fruit. And so don't lower the bar. I mean, we're here to fill the earth with God's glory. We're here to change the world. Let's not lower the bar on the magnitude of the mission. Three things that help us move to prayerful dependence, the magnitude of the mission. Second is, we can't do it. If we don't lower the bar on the magnitude of the mission, then we'll have a growing awareness of the inadequacy of our own resources, Right? So what do you do? Huge mission, unability. It's kind of like the feeding of the 5,000, like feed the 5,000 with a few crumbs, right? That's the point Jesus wants you to be at, seeing the great mission he wants to accomplish and not being able to do it. You're turning like a little kid and saying, help. So to abide in him and to have confidence in his ability, you got to see the magnitude of the mission, the inadequacy of our resources, and the abilities of the living Jesus. That's the whole point. Abide and have confidence in Jesus. Well, if we have this growth, this church and me and my family and our church, if we have this growing confidence in Jesus' affection for us and this growing confidence in Jesus' abilities to do whatever he wants to do, that's beginning to sound like really living to me. That sounds like life. And it is. That's what you're made for. There's one more point I have to point out to you. It's implied in this passage, but it's so practical. And that is, thirdly and finally, we need to abide in Jesus' authorship of our story. Look at verse 2. Because that all sounds, man, awesome. I'm not going to have any bad days. Things are always going to be easy. Sounds pretty triumphalistic, doesn't it? But there's this also little hint here that not every day is going to be pleasant. Every branch in me, verse 2, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Pruning is painful. Pruning is hard work, but it's heart work, therefore it's necessary work. It's sad that it takes, usually, it's sad that it takes pain for us to learn the lesson God wants us to learn. Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith. Jesus is the author of your story. We love that idea. Jesus is writing the story of my life. That's awesome. He's in control. That's some comfort there. We love that, but what we, we love that he's in charge of the mega plot. We hate the means he uses in the subplot. 
We do not enjoy the circumstances that we have to live in for most, most of our life, right? Let's be honest. We get bitter against God. Sometimes we get disappointed with God. We get the pain of not having easy circumstances. The pain of pruning is reality. We have to learn to live in a world that's both beautiful and broken. I call this freak-out mode. It's like, holy cow, this hurts. What am I doing wrong? What's going on here? God has to bring pain and suffering and trials, failures. So we'll learn the lessons. Freak-out mode hits when life gets hard. Here's some very common temptations when you hit freak-out mode, when you've been gut-punched, when you hate your circumstances, when you cry more than you laugh. First, it's just a doubt he really cares. We, we think, well, maybe this isn't real. We just have lack of faith. We have a faith crisis. We just think, oh, he doesn't see me right now. Or he's not good, or he's not enough. Or sometimes another temptation, not just doubt, but shame. It goes to, oh, well, this applies to everybody else, but not me. God's good, but he's not good to me. And so shame, just a lie to you. And you'll believe stuff like, well, I'm beyond hope, or I'm too damaged, or I'm unworthy. Things will never work out. This is too good to be true. God has forgotten me. It's my fault, my fault. God's out to get me. I know I'm worthless. Bring on the pain. Bring on the shame. John 15 is a wonderful picture. It offers life, but it just is not an offer to me. I'm disqualified. I've been too abused. I've abused too many others. Those are all lies. Freak-out mode brings doubt, uh, temptations of doubt and shame. But here's what grabbed me like uh, a month ago. I was reading Colossians 3, Ed, and... Uh, it, you know, it's this put on, put off. One thing it said put off was it said uh, put off covetousness, which is idolatry. And I'm like, and it's like the Holy Spirit grabbed me, and I'm like, coveting? I don't covet a whole lot. And he's like, oh, yes, you do. Okay, what am I coveting? And one of the things he showed me is that I coveted how he was working and authoring other people's stories more than he was authoring mine. I began to covet their kids, their material possessions, their ski trips, you know, all the stuff Facebook will tell you about the lies about them, you know. I was coveting their successes. I was coveting their giftednesses. I was covering their minds. I was coveting their seeming ease at going through life. And it's like, man, I was coveting. And I, then it took me like a week. So why is that idolatry? Put off covetousness, which is idolatry. And it's idolatry because if I'm thinking and coveting other people's stories, I'm believing a lie about God that he's not good and he's not the true good author of my story. And so he's pruning me and we get to prune. We tend to freak out and we have all these excuses and we tend to think, well, I hate the way he's writing my story. I hate my circumstances. And so abiding in Jesus' authorship of your story is key and it gets down to whether he's good or not. Look at verse 15 too. Why is he pruning you? Why does he bring pain in your life? Do you see it in verse 2? Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. Why? Someone say it out loud. That? Oh, yeah, that'll bear more fruit. So when he's pruning, when the pain's there, you see, pain in your life is not, you're te well, you're tempted to think that means God doesn't care. That's just a lie. It's actually proof that he's paying attention, that he's trying to draw you in intimacy and dependence. He's trying to prune away just the bad stuff. It's a sign he does care. It's a sign he's intimately involved in your life. It's a sign that he's taking you somewhere. He's writing your story. He's authoring your story. He's involved. He's trying to get you intimate and dependent. Yes, verse 2 says he's going to take some things away. Yes, sometimes he's going to reshape things. But he says... He's cleaning you up so he can dwell more powerfully in you and through you so that the life of God, you'll quit depending. You're depending on something besides him. There's that idolatry. You're believing some lie about him, that following him is some second best way to live. And he's saying, no, depend on me and I will fill you with my joy. That's verse 11. He's cleaning you so he can dwell with you more and more. His painful pruning is not punishment. 
How do we know that? We know that because of the cross. Painful pruning and circumstances in your life are not punishment because he's already punished Jesus fully on the cross. And he would be the most evil person God ever if he punished the perfect son Jesus and punished you even a little bit. You're not being punished. There's therefore now no condemnation. He's writing a good, beautiful story, but he's got to wean us from our competencies and wean us from our pride and wean us from all kinds of idolatry. He's got to do this work in our life, but it's beautiful and good, and we need to be patient, and we need to abide in his care and his affections, right? And we need to abide in his abilities, and we need to abide that he's the good author of our story. In that definition of abiding, you can just put that back up there and leave it up there. We just said that what is abiding? It's just this effort resting in the risen Jesus. Confidence in his affections for you, his abilities to work in and through you, and his authorship of your story. And then that word confidence, well, you may be asking as we close here. Yeah, I'd love to have more confidence. Well, how do I get more confidence? I, I like that, but where does confidence come from? Four implications. It's take about 60 seconds. First, confidence comes from devouring the word, right? Just pick up this Bible. If you're hungry for more confidence in his affections and authorship and abilities, just devour the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Devour the word. Second, gather expectantly in all of your gatherings, Sunday gathering, MC gathering, coffee group gatherings. Just expect, gather expectantly and ask that you're going to hear from God. And help each other get there. Third, beg God. God, I want more confidence. Remember the prayer in Mark? The guy says, I believe, help my unbelief. Yeah, adopt that one. Just ask him for it. He's a good dad. Do you think he wants you to experience life and, and really live? Well, ask him to do that. Ask him and tell him you'll be willing to do whatever it takes to stop. You'll stop whatever so that you can abide. So devour the word, gather expectantly, beg God, and then fourth and finally, just go confidently. Just go out and obey. Go share your faith. Go do what he's calling you to do because that's how you'll gain confidence. Like, oh, he could even use me. When God prompts you to encourage somebody, do it. When he prompts you to pray for somebody, do it. When he prompts you to speak up, do it. When he prompts you to serve, do it. And in the doing, you'll see the life of God being released and you'll be more confident in him. Jesus loves you. In this book is promised the best possible life in the person of Jesus. I want to pray for you now that you'll experience and really live. Father, 2017, it's January. We think about these kind of seasons in our life. And I pray, God, that in this church, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the glory of God the Father, you will bear much more fruit than ever before. That there will be conversion fruit, there will be character fruit, there will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control multiplied. I do pray for answered prayers, the fruit of glory of God, the fruit of intimacy. But most of us want all that to be just eclipsed by the life of God being realized in this church inside these homes, inside these missional communities, and the life of God being fully released so that many others can taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of Jesus, for the glory of God, do that in this church. Amen.